Lots of people interested in wildlife rehabilitation. I run the Getting the Job in Wildlife Biology Facebook group, and so many people there are talking about how they want to work in wildlife rehabilitation. Well, if this is you, and even this is not you, this is going to be an amazing podcast episode to listen to. I interview Joey Solomy of Joey of the Jungle on Instagram, and she works as a vet nurse and travels around the world, especially in Central and South America, working and volunteering in wildlife rehabilitation. She has amazing experience. She started her own organization called Jungle Rescue Reform. We talk about everything wildlife rehabilitation, vet tech work and vet nurse work. We talk about what a day in the life is like working at one of these facilities, what kind of work they do and what you can expect from working in a career in wildlife rehabilitation. It's a great conversation, jam-packed of information and fun stories. So if this is the field you want to go into, you have to listen to this episode. Joey is amazing. She really makes things happen. And I love talking to her about her organization. So let's get started. Let's get into the podcast. Welcome to the Fancy Scientist Podcast. I'm Dr. Stephanie Manka, formerly Shuttler, a wildlife biologist who's traveled the world getting their hands dirty, but was given the nickname the Fancy Scientist because I love to dress up and be fancy. My goal is to connect people with nature so that we can restore our planet and rediscover who we really are. I share with you my insights as a scientist and offer real talk on animals, conservation, lifestyle, and advice on this amazing but confusing career. Join me to learn about our world and how we can become the best versions of ourselves so that we can thrive and more effectively conserve nature for all living beings. Hi, Joey. Welcome to the Fancy Scientist podcast. I am so excited to have you today. Thank you for having me. So um, why don't we start off by first telling us about your background and how you got involved in what you do. So can you provide us with a description of, of what you do and then how you the path you took to get there? I'm involved in a few different things and it's a little bit all over the place, but I work full time as a veterinary nurse or some people refer to it as veterinary technician, depending on where you're from. So I work full time doing that. I'm involved in wildlife conservation work, mainly in Central and South America, particularly in the Amazon rainforest. So I do a lot of work with small organizations or organizations that are operating in remote parts of the world that work to rescue, rehabilitate, and where possible, release wildlife victims of animal trafficking. I'm involved in a few projects here in Texas right now involving reptiles and just educating the public on different reptile species. And yeah, right now that's pretty much it. I have a budding organization called Jungle Rescue Reform, which is associated with the work that I do with wildlife rehabilitation centers in Central and South America. And yeah, so I'm pretty much involved in animals in several different ways. And it's exciting. And how did you discover this career path? What steps did you take to get here? So I initially thought that I wanted to be a veterinarian. So I started working as a veterinary. I started off as a kennel assistant and then veterinary assistant. And then I think I just saw firsthand some of the work that goes into being a veterinary nurse. And what we do is actually a lot more hands-on and it's just a lot more in depth than I think people think. So we get the really exciting, interesting part of the veterinary world. <laughs> so when I was studying pre-veterinary medicine, I decided to go down that path of more nursing. And then I switched over my education a little bit after pre-vet to do more wildlife conservation biology. Because at, as I was working as an early, as a new veterinary nurse, I also first became exposed to wildlife rehabilitation in Costa Rica during my first trip to Costa Rica that I took in 2016 to go do some volunteer work at a sanctuary in Dominical, Costa Rica. And it kind of just set off from there. 
in the beginning of my education. I was a little bit all over the place. I wasn't sure if I want to be a vet, do I want to be a wildlife vet, a zoologist. But I decided that I wanted to work and make money in the United States as a veterinary nurse and then also take my education a little bit further with wildlife conservation biology and also use my knowledge and experience as a veterinary nurse to also help with the work in other countries as a wildlife conservationist and somebody who helps rehabilitate wildlife. So you work full-time then either for a hospital or practice as a nurse, and then you do these rehabilitation other countries as volunteering. Is that correct? Yes. So I work full-time as a veterinary nurse. It's been a few different hospitals that I've been to just because of moving and such. But yes, I usually have a pretty good situation set up where they know what I do. And so they allow me to you know, take my time off that I need and um, travel to the Amazon rainforest and other neotropical rainforests. And then while I'm still studying wildlife conservation biology, I'm conducting research simultaneously with wildlife rehabilitation, specifically focused on primate rehabilitation in the Amazon rainforest. So yeah, so I do volunteer work out there and I conduct research at the same time. I've heard of vets, obviously, and vet techs, but I actually don't think I've heard of a vet nurse or it just hasn't struck out. So can you tell us what the difference is between a vet and a vet tech and a vet nurse? So a vet tech and a vet nurse are pretty much the same thing. I think that they refer to us more as vet nurses. Actually, I think they refer to us more as such in the UK, if I'm not wrong, but it's really interchangeable. I just say vet nurse because a lot of the doctors that I've always worked with and hospitals I've worked with, they label us as vet nurses, but a veterinary nurse and a veterinary technician are the same thing. So a veterinarian can prescribe medication, diagnose, and they can perform like internal surgery, like where you actually open up the body. Veterinary technician slash nurse pretty much does everything else. And a lot of people don't know that. So everything from placing IV catheters to drawing blood, taking x-rays, doing, you know, minor exams, bandages, you name it, the list goes on. That is usually what a veterinary technician is responsible for. And your vet tech or vet nurse work here in the U.S., is that primarily on domestic animals? Right now it is. I've done work in exotic hospitals. So exotic hospitals see rabbits, you name it, iguanas, snakes, turtles, birds. Right now where I'm at in Texas, I work primarily with dogs and cats, but I did convince one of our vets to maybe start seeing some more exotic animals. So yeah, I've done both. I've I've done both. I've worked with both, but right now it's mostly dogs and cats. And then how did you get involved with rehabilitation work? What was the path there? Because you were a vet nurse, did that automatically qualify you for, I'm just not as familiar with rehabilitation work in the medical world. So did that automatically Mm -hmm. qualify you to work on the rehabilitation of wild animals? How did that transition happen? In 2016, I traveled to Costa Rica and that was my first experience with wildlife rehabilitation in Central America or with wildlife outside of the species from my own country. So that was my first experience with that. And so it all depends on the organization and the facility, basically how they bring people in. But when I started there, you know, I just told them my background, my education background and my background as a veterinary nurse. And you know, that they, they were like, okay, well, given your background, your history, you know how to work with medicine and you know how to restrain animals and such will put you more into the clinic portion of our rehabilitation center. So I started off, you know, taking care of the animals, feeding them, giving like the orphan babies their milk. And then over some time, I started to do some work in the clinic. And that is how that started off with that. And that just kind of really catapulted me into knowing what I want to do. And so, from there, I kept doing it. I kept traveling. I geared my studies more towards wildlife conservation biology. And I just gained so much experience doing it over time. And it's been both a combination of education and just 
you know, year after year, building up experience with it in other countries. And then I also got involved in wildlife rehabilitation in the United States at a, a bird rescue in New York City. So I, I was just pulling experience from everywhere that I could and built it up to this point that I'm at now. Mm-hmm. Were those volunteer or sorry, were those rehabilitation experiences paid or volunteer? I'm just curious because a lot of people are interested in going to this field. And I'm just wondering like how people can fund themselves or what they should expect if they want to go down this career path. So when discussing the the whole career passing, I'm sure as you know, there's so many different avenues to take. There's so many different approaches. For me personally, I get paid through veterinary medicine. Now, if I am to go to a wildlife sanctuary in another country and stay there for, it's usually, and it all depends on what they can do in the offer, but let's say it's roughly around six months to a year, then you get a small payment. You get like a small monthly payment for staying there. I usually don't do those really, really extended trips because I have pets at home and I have a lot of things that I'm involved in here. And I also get paid to you know, work in the clinic in the United States. So I personally do not typically do this kind of, that kind of rehabilitation work for any type of money. The only thing that I get is I'll get three meals a day and a place to sleep in exchange for my time there. So that's usually how that is. And I, yes, I have been offered opportunities to be paid, but again, I would need to stay there for an extended period of time. And a lot of these animals then in the rehabilitation centers are from wildlife trafficking. That's what you mentioned. Yeah. Can you tell us more about some of the kinds of animals you've worked with and exactly how and why they're trafficked and how they end up in the rehabilitation center? Yeah, so I ended up developing a, a focus on primates, which wasn't always the case for me. But after working with different species in the Amazon for, you know, months here, months there, so on and so forth. I developed a real interest in primates. So there is a lot of primates that are trafficked out of Central and South America. And I feel like it's not talked about as much as like you hear from Asia and Africa, but you've got so many primate species from woolly monkeys, howler monkeys, capuchin monkeys, the little small tamarines that are trafficked out of the country and sold as pets. Some of them are sold within the country as bushmeat or as pets within the country as well. Uh, you have a lot of parrots and tropical birds that are trafficked, even reptiles, just so many different species. I've worked with um, tapir. I'm sure you know what those are. And just so many different things that a lot of people don't even know exist, but people steal from the jungle to make money, even baby jaguars, baby cougars. They look at that as an opportunity to make quick cash, again, whether it be through bushmeat or as pets or even like jaguars, for example, for their coat. So a lot of times the animals end up being the police either confiscate them or they've been sold as pets. If they're in that country, the person who bought them realizes once they start reaching adulthood that they can't care for them anymore. Or they're scared of them. There's all different types of circumstances that occur that lead them to ending up in a wildlife rehabilitation center in remote parts of the, the rainforest. And yeah, that's pretty much how it happens. But their backgrounds are all very different. You know, some were abused, some were injured, some were orphan babies, some are adults. So it's just all different types of situations. I'm actually really surprised that you said about bushmeat because bushmeat, as you mentioned, is usually something you hear about more in Asia and also Africa. So that's a big problem there as well. Yeah. So people eat and, you know, I, I don't want to come down too much on anything culturally because obviously that's how other countries, they have their culturally what they eat and, and what they consider food and that's fine, obviously, that, you know, that's going to happen. But, you know, when it's happening in bulk with species that are endangered or at risk of becoming endangered, obviously, that's a problem. It's also, depending on where it's at, what country, it's also not legal. So if police do, you know, see it or catch wind of it, they usually try to 
confiscate those animals and bring them to a rehabilitation center. But yes, they do eat monkeys and they eat turtles, tortoises. So that's pretty common out there. Yeah. In Gabon, the problem was that not so much like the local villagers eating bush meat, but that they would they would transport the bush meat on the trains to the bigger cities. And then it just became a volume problem where too many people were consuming bush meat. And yeah, it just wasn't the forests aren't able to supply all those people. About how many animals, like percentage wise, stay at the rehabilitation center versus can be released into the wild? I know it's probably a huge variation in numbers, but can you give us any sort of estimate? So to give you an idea of, of just like you said, the variation, it really depends on the country. It depends on its laws because I've worked at like, I've been at wildlife rehabilitation centers in Ecuador where the facility, the staff there have a pretty easy time releasing animals who are prepared to be released. Whereas you have countries such as Peru and Bolivia, where the government makes it really, really difficult. So the percentage that end up having to stay depend on the country, the government and the rules. It also depends on obviously whether these animals are eligible for release. It depends on what age they came into the facility. They're, you know, mentally, if they're if they've been too impacted mentally by wildlife trafficking or their previous life prior to being rescued. So it really depends on all that. I want to say that there is a large percentage in most of the facilities that I've been to, there's a large percentage that end up staying for one reason or another. So you'll see animals that are really ready and capable of being released, but the government won't give the sanctuary the okay. And a lot of sanctuary in a lot of those countries, they can't risk releasing animals without that okay because they could get shut down. And it, understandably so, you know, they, they're concerned about disease and other things, you know, the government. So they're not just letting these organizations rehabilitate wildlife and then just releasing them. That's what I was going to ask. Why wouldn't they let them be released? So disease is the main concern? Yeah, so... For example, there is, I think I've spent the most time in Peru. So a lot of the sanctuaries in Peru, they'll have, there's one in particular right outside of Madre de, Madre de Dios. And she does an excellent job. And she has tons of primates, especially red howler monkeys. But she has to submit paperwork of blood work and tests and vaccines over a period of time to the government. And then they have to send back to her the okay to release them. And all of that is not only expensive, but it's like lengthy. They're not, for some reason, they're not in any rush to respond to her. So all of that takes a lot of time. And then, you know, after a certain amount of time, the animal has stayed at the rehabilitation center. And sometimes you feel like you've kind of taken a few steps back because they've overstayed when they were ready to go a year and a half ago. So that happens a lot in Peru, for example. So yeah, blood test vaccines and other pieces of proof that the animal's ready and that the animal's cleared of any potential diseases it could spread to other animals. Um, and then the animal like gets used to the captive life and it's harder for them to be released into the wild, probably. Yeah, yeah. All, all depending again on how they're rehabilitated, how they're housed there. A lot of, you know, there's some places that do better than others. There's some places that can afford to do better than others that have the support or the staff. And then there's some places that don't. And that's why I'm really passionate about wildlife rehabilitation centers that are operating in remote parts of the world because they're doing a lot of work and they're doing a great job. They just don't have that spotlight or that support that your more popular facilities have. Do you have recommendations for what people can look for in finding an organization to support, whether they want to volunteer their time or money? Because I do know traveling that sometimes the word sanctuary can be slapped on to places that are actually really tourist traps and the animals aren't taken good care of. So what can people look for for an ethical sanctuary doing really good conservation work? I think that, so it, it's a little bit hard, I guess, for me to explain, but I think first you want to narrow it down either by country or by continent, depending. 
because different species are treated in different ways that you want to avoid. So if there's anything, for example, if you want to go to Africa and there's anything that's allowing you to have hands-on contact with tigers, well, tigers aren't from Africa, but lions and mainly lions, you know, big cats from Africa, you don't want to, you don't want to participate in those. As far as Asia, you know, a big attraction to Asia is the elephants. So any place that, you know, is encouraging you to ride them or even bathe with them, it's really not ethical. You want to kind of avoid those. In Central and South America, it gets a little bit more tricky. And, you know, that's why I'm so passionate about Central and South America. But you really just have to do your research and just see, hey, go to these sanctuaries. And now I feel like I have a relationship with almost all of them in that area. But when I first started, I would do so much research on the sanctuaries. So I would obviously look it up on Google, but also I would look at its social media pages. And then I would look at the hashtags associated with its name. I would then reach out and message people who have been there and worked there and get this full scope of just as best an idea of the place that I can to determine if it's ethical and if it's something that I would like to support and be a part of. You definitely want to see if there's any evidence, proof, or information about them releasing the animals, how they go about releasing the animals, their end goal with these animals. And again, not just take their word for it, but try and talk to the people that have been there. And that's really possible because of social media. It really is. If you know how to, you know, follow the hashtags, then see who posted that hashtag, see who posted that, talk to them. You can get that background information. So you don't just want to take their word for it. Don't just talk to the sanctuary. Talk to other people who have volunteered there, who have worked there, who have interned there and, and put it all together. And as long as it seems ethical and they're not just letting anybody come in and, you know, handle these animals any old way and they're not holding on to animals, you know, so that they can just be a tourist attraction, things like that. Uh, then that's how you can decide if it's something worth getting involved in. If you're going as a volunteer for your first time, if you're really inexperienced, then is it common to not handle wildlife at all? It depends. It really depends. And again, my only personal firsthand experience is in Central and South America. So again, we're talking Costa Rica, Colombia, Peru, Ecuador, Bolivia, all those countries. And they really need the help. So do you need to have some sort of special background or degree to work hands-on with these animals? A lot of times, no. And that's okay. A lot of times, these sanctuaries determine how much hands-on contact you can have with them based on how long you're staying. So they want you to get the opportunity to really fully be trained in how they do things. And they want the animals to kind of get used to the same face and not a whole bunch of different faces every few weeks. So if they know that you're somebody that's going to stay a while, that's going to get that full training, and it's going to build a little bit of a relationship and understanding of these animals, you'll get more of a hands-on opportunity. For volunteers that don't have any experience, really, and are just trying to get involved, which I highly recommend that they still do, and it, it really can be their first foot in the door like it was for me, go ahead and do it. The stuff that you'll be involved in is still very exciting. You'll be able to observe and watch the animals, monitor them, prepare their foods, clean up after them. And, you know, it really just depends on the needs of the sanctuary, the types of animals that they have and how they feel like your contact with them may or may not impact the animal. Yeah. And it's important for the volunteers to remember that the goal is the animal's welfare and success. So it might be against or might not be beneficial to have a lot of handling with the animal if it's going to be released in the wild. So even if you are experienced, they might not want you to interact with that animal and it used to people. Exactly. It all depends on, again, the plan for the animal and, you know, what their goal is with each individual animal. But yeah, you should always Go into these projects if, if that's something that you want to do. You should always go into these projects, yes, knowing that it's all about the welfare of the animal and in the long run, the welfare of the species. And if you're going there, you know, trying to, I guess, build on your own career, 
just getting the interaction and building those connections with the people who work there and just learning about how they do things, that really is going to help you get that step up that you may be looking for in a future career. Do a lot of the places that you have worked with, do they study the animals after release? Or even apart from that, do they study the animals at all? I come from more of a science background where we research animals um, and a lot of wildlife work or, or rehabilitation work is more medical. So is there a role for research and wildlife rehabilitation work as well? Absolutely. Like I said, it's almost overwhelming the different avenues that you can take with, whether it be wildlife conservation, wildlife rehabilitation. But yes, so there are people. So the there's the one sanctuary, I'm going to reference that one again. It's called Amazon Shelter, by the way, for anyone who's curious. The owner of that, she's a wonderful woman. She will release a troop of whatever species she's releasing at the time. It's usually either red howler monkeys or brown capuchins. She'll release the troop. So she'll take a day's trip with a small team of volunteers, long-term volunteers, and she'll release a troop deep into the Amazon in a protected area. And then they stay there and they watch how the primates are doing and how they're getting along. And, you know, if they're making new troops or just how things are going. And then they'll she tries to then return or she'll send a team back to that area to return and they keep collecting data and information on these groups. So you do have people like her who do that. A lot of sanctuaries, the people who own it and the people who, you know, are the the staff there do not have the time to do that research. So they bring in, they most certainly do bring in volunteers slash interns to conduct that research themselves. So people who either are, you know, going for their master's and need to do a thesis, they can definitely conduct research on site at these facilities or people who just want to do the research, who maybe already have a degree and want to conduct research, most certainly can. They most certainly will take you in. And, you know, depending on the facility, a lot of times they'll provide at minimum a place for you to stay and three meals for you to eat so that you can conduct that research over an extended period of time. Tell us about your organization, the Jungle Rescue Reform. What inspired you to found it and what is your mission? So Jungle Rescue Reform is basically an organization that I founded because I personally felt like there were so many wildlife sanctuaries, again, operating in remote parts of the world, remote parts of the rainforest. So a lot of people didn't know about that we're doing, that are doing such fascinating, incredible work with wildlife victims of trafficking. And they really could use financial support from volunteers, interns, just, just so much support is needed at these places. And They just don't really get the attention that I feel like they deserve. If you are somebody who is either in college and trying to get some experience, a lot of times the colleges will promote going to volunteer intern at sanctuaries that, first of all, for some reason, are going to cost the student an outrageous amount of money. And these students and these aspiring biologists, zoologists, conservationists are being funneled towards these larger sanctuaries, these larger facilities that get a great deal of people to come and work for them. And they get T-shirts and they get time off to go, you know, explore the rest of the country. And I think the focus is kind of lost and so much money is spent. And then you have these other organizations that are doing so much work and are dedicating every minute of every day to just rehabilitating these animals and releasing them. And yet they're just not getting the attention, funding, volunteers, interns that they really deserve. So jungle rescue reform, my goal is for it to serve a few different purposes. So to really help funnel aspiring, like I said, biologists, conservationists, zoologists, what have you to go to these facilities and help them, interns, people who maybe have a degree and want to, you know, spend some time working at these facilities. You know, I really want to funnel people that way to these places that are less known so that they can get professional 
support so that they can get support from people who are truly passionate and have a background in wildlife rehabilitation or research. My other goal is to try and get them funding, try and get them literature, like updated literature, books, any type of resources that they could use because a lot of them don't have any internet. And a lot of them are operating with no licensed veterinarian. And again, it's nothing, they're still doing a fantastic job, but they, you know, just what they could do with the right help would be so fascinating. So it really just frustrated me seeing the same type of facilities, getting the attention, getting the funding, getting the students, whereas you have these smaller places or these places that aren't as popular, aren't as fancy, but that are really in the thick of it, really doing it and actually doing a really fantastic job. Them just not getting enough attention. So I kind of just want to bring that support their way. Again, there's a few different things with jungle rescue reform. I was inspired to do it or to put it together because of a lot of the things that I witnessed firsthand also at some of these sanctuaries. You know, some of them were operating pretty poorly. You know, not all of my experiences were good ones. Some of them were pretty disappointing. I saw a lot of conflict between veterinarians who would come to work for a few months and the people who own the sanctuaries. There's a lot of controversy. There's a lot of conflict. There's a lot of debating. And I think there's a lot that is misunderstood when it comes to rehabilitating wildlife in these parts of the world, in remote parts of the world. I think there's a, a lot of misunderstanding. I think it's really easy for scientists to sit on their soapbox and point the finger at how these facilities are operating and how they're running things when in actuality, what they're doing is actually really working. So there's just so many parts of it. And if you go to my website, I pretty much break it all down on different pages for anybody who's interested. But yeah, there was a few different things that inspired me to put this together. If people are interested in volunteering at those organizations, can they find this information on your website? Or how should people go about looking for places to volunteer? So I don't think I have a full list of organizations, which I, sh I should, but I usually have people, I have people reach out to me directly because sometimes it's hard to get in touch with these organizations because they don't have access always to internet or the waiting for a response can be delayed or difficult. So I do have my website set up where you can contact me directly. And I basically just ask you a few questions and see what your motives are, because a lot of times these sanctuaries do get volunteers who end up at these sanctuaries and they don't want to work or they think it's going to be all playing with animals. And I really don't want to get those type of people, you know, to, to waste the sanctuary's time, because I've seen that so many times. And the work that they're doing is really important. And you, you just get a lot of people that think they're going to go there and have a good time and party and play with animals. So my website is, it again, it doesn't have listed all the sanctuaries. I think I list one or two at a time that I'm raising funds for. But I do have a way for people to contact me. And then, you know, we'll have a quick conversation, a quick chat, and I'll just see their background and what they're interested in doing. And then I'll help them make a decision about which sanctuary I feel like would fit them best and their goals and interests. And also just prepare them for what it's really like, because you get some people who want to volunteer or intern in the Amazon, but they don't understand what it's like. You're not going to have any hot water and you're going to sleep with tarantulas on the wall. And that's just how it is. And if you're not ready for that, don't waste your time or anybody else's traveling out there, you know, thinking that you're going to have some luxury experience. So I remember when I was looking for internships like 20 years ago, there was this one ad for a research assistant that kept reposting. I think, you know, like every season it would repost. And it would have this like huge long description of it was, I think it was primate research. And they were like, monkeys will throw poop at you. There's going to be all these insects. It like made it sound as miserable as possible because it was like, you know, primate research. And everyone's probably like, oh, this sounds fun. And yeah, I mean, it is enjoyable, but there's a lot of hardship that goes along with field work that people don't realize. Yes. And primates are very dangerous. They're very, very strong, very dangerous. They're, they're sweet and beautiful. Yes. But... <laughs> 
I think social media kind of and, and and lots of things. And I guess, you know, we're all guilty of it a little bit at some point, but it kind of paints this picture that just everything is just so friendly and wonderful. And yeah, people who want to actually work with primates and research them and especially re- rehabilitate them have to be aware that you're going to get injured. And, and if not by the primate themselves, just by the conditions, like there's never a time that I go abroad and I'm not either sick or hurt, <laughs> you know, it just it comes with it. So people need to be prepared. What is the the day to day life like as a volunteer? And then can you talk about what it's like if somebody were to get a full time position in rehabilitation as well? I have a lot of people, again, who who want this as a career. So. As a volunteer, again, it's going to vary from place to place and what you're doing and what type of animals they have. But usually you're on a schedule, you're on a set schedule. Typically, you wake up anywhere between 6.30, a.m., get your day started with some breakfast, and then you prepare food for animals. You clean up after them. A lot of uh, a big part of it, which is actually really exciting, is enrichment, creating enrichment for these animals, creating toys for them, creating things with different scents that they might encounter in the wild and creating different ways for them to find food. So that's a big part of volunteer work and where people can really get creative and use their creativity for good. Every day, as whether you're a volunteer or an intern or actually working there, every day is different. You never know what's going to happen. I've had days where a monkey, you know, comes into the sanctuary uh, electrocuted. You have birds that come in with broken wings. You have all different types of cases that come in. You have people that just drop off even baby jaguars there. So every day is going to be different because you don't know what's going to be new coming into the sanctuary. You also don't know what type of injuries or issues are going to occur while you're there with the animals that are already living there. A lot of it is also observation. So depending on, again, what they have and how the facility functions as far as like housing animals and putting them with groups of the same species or separating them, you'll observe how animals do in new enclosures with new, like new enclosure mates new friends you know because sometimes you have to either split them up or put them together a lot of times research i mean sanctuaries when they're releasing primates they want to release them in groups so they have to make sure that there is a nice happy little troop that's going to be successful out there so a lot of what you'll be doing also will be just sitting on a chair with a notepad in front of an enclosure just observing the animals trying to figure out if there is like an alpha if they have any like interpersonal issues within that troop and just kind of taking information from there. And as a volunteer, you could be involved in even more. You know, a lot of times these facilities have small clinics on site and you might have to help hold some animals down for some bandaging or even some of these places have surgeries. You have to give medication. So it all depends. If you're working there, like if you're being paid a small amount to to work there, it's going to be the same thing, but like times 10. So it's going to be twice the work, twice the hands-on just work. And yeah, it's going to pretty much be the same, just, you know, more of it. And uh, volunteers get a little bit more lax. They get their like middle of the day that they get to relax. They get their days off of the week. Usually it's one to two weeks. Sometimes if you're working there, it's hard to find that time off. And You can be scheduled for time off, but because it's just such a chaotic environment where you're constantly needing to do something, it can be hard to have personal time. So that is something to consider if you plan on doing like a long-term internship or working, working there. But I will say it's very worth it. I mean, the experiences people have at these facilities, unlike any other. And then if you're like even higher up, then you probably have roles in social media and website and directing, managing volunteers and fundraising is probably really big. Government, like you mentioned, permits and mm-hmm. doing all that yeah. relation and coordination. Yeah. And there are people that even and even paid can do that from home, like whether it be in the United States or somewhere else. A lot of these sanctuaries 
hire people to, like you said, run their social media or, you know, get new volunteers and new interns prepared for their time there. So there is opportunities even for people who are unable to travel at the time to get involved. And any type of, in my opinion, I feel like any type of involvement really helps you just slowly build those stepping stones to, you know, future career. So maybe even people, if they wanted to get involved and they can't travel, maybe they can reach out and volunteer in another way, like helping out with social media or something. like. Yes, that. absolutely. They're always looking for people to do social media work or to help with. Sometimes facilities have it where people can sponsor animals. And so they'll need somebody to interact with those people who are sponsoring the animals, send them photos, send them updates and things like that. And you know, people to collect funds, whatever the case may be, there's really lots of opportunities. So I encourage people to really just do their research on, do a little bit deeper of a research. And definitely you can reach out to me to just find these organizations because they, there is opportunities for you, whether it's there in that country or at that sanctuary or even at home. Well, I've had such a great uh, time talking to you. I just have one last question or ask. Tell us a story, like a fun animal story. Either it can be like a positive one of an animal that that made a comeback and was released into the wild or like a really cool experience you had with an animal. I'll let you choose what kind of story. Oh, let me talk about Ellie. I'll talk about Ellie. So because I usually talk about primates because I've gotten so obsessed with them over time. But I'll talk about Ellie the tapir. So Ellie was a Brazilian tapir that I was working with in Peru at, again, I'm going to mention the Amazon shelter in Peru. And she was such a wonderful little spirited animal. And when I was working with her, she was a juvenile tapir. She was rescued during COVID-19. So the pandemic obviously impacted the entire world. And there were a lot of zoos in other, you know, in, in Central and South America, for example, there were a lot of zoos that didn't obviously they weren't having they, they weren't receiving any guests they weren't receiving any visitors funding what have you and a lot of the animals ended up being abandoned because the people running these facilities just abandoned these little zoos so ellie was a young tapir that was rescued from one of those zoos during the covid-19 pandemic and she was sent over to the amazon shelter pulling and that's where i met her and i worked extensively with her And what was exciting, what we got to do with Ellie was teach her how to accept veterinary exams. So for anyone who doesn't know, tapirs are really, I don't even know how to explain them. They're kind of like hippos mixed with rhinos, mixed with horses. I think genetically they're closest to rhinos and horses. And they end up being pretty, pretty big. They can grow up to 700 pounds. So because of that, yeah, that's I think that's the largest recorded. Yeah. So because they're so big, they're so powerful and they're not really known to be aggressive, but just being so big and so powerful, it can be difficult to perform a veterinary exam on an animal like that. So we would do target training with her and she did really well. So that with target training, we taught her how to accept little injection pokes. You know, we would do it with the cap on and then we would do small little pokes just to get her to understand that, okay, you you allow yourself to receive a poke, you get some grapes. We put together this, we built this scale for her and we taught her how to get on and off because again, it's not, it's not like a dog or a cat where you can just pick it up or direct it. You know, this is an animal that's big, it's, it's powerful and it's a wild animal at, at the end of the day. So it's going to do what it wants to do. So anyway, so we did a lot of target and positive reinforcement training with her so she can um, accept veterinary exams and it ended up going really well and I spent a great deal of time with her and I was under the impression that given the circumstances and all that she really wasn't going to be eligible for release even though she was a really healthy uh, tapir who had potential to be released just fine Uh, and she had so much personality she was so sweet they behave like dogs you know they want to just run and play and they just really have so much personality that unfortunately we miss out on because people don't really even know about these animals but they're just so sweet and magnificent she was a real sweetheart she loved scratches and everything 
So anyway, when I left there, you know, I said goodbye to her and it was one of the hardest goodbyes I've had to oh. <laughs> endure during one of my departures from the Amazon. But I, I always told myself, you know, I'd see her again because she couldn't be released to my to our understanding at the time. And I just got word about a month ago that she actually was released. So this animal that I spent so much time with was emotional. <laughs> well, that's, that's fantastic. Yeah, so she's free. Oh, I love that. That's great. Do they do they track her by any chance, or are they? Yeah, so her? she's in. She is. She was released in an, a protected area. Mm-hmm. So she, there's like cameras. They make sure that she's, you know, that they kind of keep tabs on what's going on and how she's doing. So right now she's in a protected area, and uh, she's doing good. No, oh, I love that. <laughs> Thank you so yeah. much for sharing that with us. Well, and um, I'm going to have the, the link to your website on the show notes. And I actually looked at you have a story section. You can see a picture of Ellie on the story section. Yes. Yes. Really cute. You can see what it takes yeah. in case you don't know. Yes. Yes. A lot of people don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much. I learned so much from you and it was so much fun chatting with you and yes. you, you being here. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Joey, for that interview. It was jam-packed full of information. I learned so much. I have not worked in wildlife rehabilitation, so it was fantastic to talk to an expert and get answers from you. You can find Joey at Joey of the Jungle on Instagram. It is Joey, J-O-E-Y dot of dot the dot jungle. And I will put the link in the show notes as well. And you can also find her at Jungle Rescue Reform. Go to junglerescuereform.org to get the website. And as Joey mentioned in the podcast that she's willing to talk to you if you're interested in volunteering in organizations in Central and South America. So if you are interested in this career, make sure you jump on that opportunity and send her a DM. You can find all of the contact info in the show notes. Until next time, my friend, I will see you. Have an amazing day. Be kind to animals and be kind to each other. Bye. Are you an aspiring or struggling wildlife biologist, ecologist, conservation biologist, or anyone interested in a career with wildlife? Join our community, the Getting a Job in Wildlife Biology Facebook group. Based on my book, Getting a Job in Wildlife Biology, What It's Like and What You Need to Know, this Facebook group is designed to connect, support, and inspire future and current wildlife professionals or those who can't get a job. Come for daily affirmations to lead you to career success, job postings, and profiles of professionals in cool jobs. If you're struggling, feel stuck, lost, confused, or are just worried about this career, reach out to me at stephanie at fancyscientist.com to schedule a free clarity call. I've talked to over 100 aspiring wildlife professionals and those struggling to get a job, and they've told me what I also experienced. Degrees alone do not prepare you for wildlife careers. You need the right combination of experience, education, network, and skills to land the job you want. You also need to be able to convey that on a job application and sell yourself to the employer. I've looked at over 100 cover letters and interviewed graduates, I can tell you for sure they are selling themselves short, not listing all of their expertise and not marketing themselves effectively. I've talked to potential students who have dynamic personalities and sound so knowledgeable and experienced in person. But when I look at their resumes or CVs, none of that is reflected. If what you have been doing is not working, it's not all of a sudden going to start working. It's time to make a change. If you want to get your dream job in the fastest way possible, schedule a Zoom meeting with me today. No matter what stage of your career you are at, from high school student to graduate searching for jobs, I can help you. It is never too early or late to start. If this episode helped you or someone you know, make sure to tag me on Instagram at fancy underscore scientist 
and share this podcast with your community to continue spreading the word and reach more people. Also, be sure to leave a review on iTunes to receive extra positive vibes and love from me. Plus, you'll be helping me reach even more people with this important message. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate each and every one of you. Are you an aspiring or struggling wildlife biologist, ecologist, conservation biologist, or anyone interested in a career with wildlife? Join our community, the Getting a Job in Wildlife Biology Facebook group. Based on my book, Getting a Job in Wildlife Biology, What It's Like and What You Need to Know, this Facebook group is designed to connect, support, and inspire future and current wildlife professionals or those who can't get a job. Comfort daily affirmations to lead you to career success, job postings, and profiles of professionals in cool jobs. If you're struggling, feel stuck, lost, confused, or are just worried about this career, reach out to me at stephanie at fancyscientist.com to schedule a free clarity call. I've talked to over 100 aspiring wildlife professionals and those struggling to get a job, and they've told me what I also experienced. Degrees alone do not prepare you for wildlife careers. You need the right combination of experience, education, network, and skills to land the job you want. You also need to be able to convey that on a job application and sell yourself to the employer. I've looked at over 100 cover letters and interviewed graduates. I can tell you for sure they are selling themselves short, not listing all of their expertise and not marketing themselves effectively. I've talked to potential students who have dynamic personalities and sound so knowledgeable and experienced in person. But when I look at their resumes or CVs, none of that is reflected. If what you have been doing is not working, it's not all of a sudden going to start working. It's time to make a change. If you want to get your dream job in the fastest way possible, schedule a Zoom meeting with me today. No matter what stage of your career you are at, from high school student to graduate searching for jobs, I can help you. It is never too early or late to start. If this episode helped you or someone you know, make sure to tag me on Instagram at fancy underscore scientist and share this podcast with your community to continue spreading the word and reach more people. Also, be sure to leave a review on iTunes to receive extra positive vibes and love from me. Plus, you'll be helping me reach even more people with this important message. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate each and every one of you. Are you an inspiring or entry-level wildlife biologist, ecologist, conservation biologist, or any other allergist wanting a career working with wildlife who's struggling, feeling stuck, lost, confused, or just plain worried about this career, then you are gonna to wanna to make sure to do these three things. First, head over to fancyscientist.com and check out all of the resources I have for you. You'll find tons of informative blog posts and free tools. In my program section, you'll find master classes and self-paced programs, some of which are 100% free. And if you want to go even deeper with me and have the mentoring you always wanted, then check out my one-on-one -on -one and group mentoring programs. Second, while you're over there, you'll want to make sure to sign up for my newsletter where you'll be the first to know about my latest blog post, podcast episodes, free trainings, and program offers. Sign up for my newsletter or opt in to any of my freebies and you'll be added to the list. Third, join our community at the Getting a Job in Wildlife Biology Facebook group. This is based on my book of the same name that has sold thousands of copies helping aspiring wildlife biologists literally all over the world. In this group, my intention is to connect, support, and inspire future wildlife professionals. Come for daily affirmations to ensure your mind is primed for success, exclusive tips, myth busting, and more. If this episode helped you, please be sure to leave a review to help us reach even more people with this important message. You'll for sure receive extra positive vibes and love from me.